Are you looking for high-quality supplements to complement your healthy, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic lifestyle? Well, look no more as I've teamed up with ketogenic practitioner and my Keto Talk podcast co-host, Dr. Adam Nally, to create the Keto Living line of supplements. Go to ketoliving.com to see our first two items available for you, the Keto Essentials Multivitamin and the Berberine Plus Blood Sugar Control Formula. Dr. Nally himself hand-selected the key nutrients included in the Keto Essentials multivitamin, including vitamin D, methylated folate for those with the MTHFR gene mutation, vitamin B12, CoQ10, and so much more. And if you are concerned about elevated blood sugar and cholesterol levels, then check out our customized product called Berberine Plus, which combines the anti-inflammatory power of berberine with therapeutic levels of chromium and banaba leaf. And we're just getting started on the Keto Living brand of ketogenic-focused supplements in 2017, including the first-ever high-fat meal replacement powder to help you ditch those problematic protein powders coming soon. Go to ketoliving.com to get your hands on these exciting new supplements to enhance your ketogenic diet. Ketoliving.com Whether you're brand new to keto or if you're a seasoned veteran, you're going to love what we put together for you at OneStopKeto.com. OneStopKeto has put together this great new ketogenic box just for you, the listeners of my podcast. It includes epic pork rinds, epic bacon bits, peely nuts, roam sticks, primal kitchen collagen bars, and vital protein stick packs. Again, visit the website onestopketo.com to get this exclusive offer for my listeners. Onestopketo.com. Coming up in episode 1238, Dr. Georgia E. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author you're like the LL Cool J of podcasting Jimmy Moore hey hey guys we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore and today I'm very privileged to welcome to the podcast a lady by the name of Dr. Georgia Edie and she is a Harvard trained psychiatrist who uh, whose area of expertise includes low carbohydrate diets as well as pre-agricultural diets food sensitivity syndromes, and college mental health. Dr. Eid was the first psychiatrist at Harvard University Health Services to offer nutrition consultation as an alternative to medication management. She's now at Smith College in Western Massachusetts, and she writes all about nutrition and the brain effects for psychology today and explores how food affects the human body. You may have heard of this website, Diagnosis Diet. Dot com And Georgia, I don't know why it took so long to get you on the show, but welcome to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Oh, it, I'm, it's just my pleasure, Jimmy. Thank you so much for inviting me. And you've been uh, uh, out there for many years at DiagnosisDiet.com. Definitely, you guys, go check her out. Uh, she offers a little bit of different perspective, and we're going to 
dive into that just here a little bit today, talking about a lot of these mental aspects. But before we get into kind of what you do now and some of the hot topics, tell us a little more about yourself. What made you want to be a psychiatrist? <laughs> well, actually, well, that, I don't know if that, that might be a little bit too personal. A long story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, actually, when I was in medical school, I had a lot of different interests. I was I was really torn between um, subspecialty medical uh, fields such as endocrinology um, and and pathology, even and psychiatry. I really discovered a love for psychiatry when I was in medical school. It really took me by surprise. Yeah. And I was just really intrigued by human behavior and people, and I, I love people, and I love trying to understand, you know, what makes people tick. And and so th- that's how I, I really did stumble upon it. It wasn't my initial intention to go into psychiatry. So, but I still always had that love of biochemistry and sort of subspecialty, like really deep medical knowledge. Yeah. And uh, so I guess I eventually found myself marrying those two things. Um, my own personal story of how I became interested in nutrition is another another question, but but uh, that's how I became interested in psychiatry. So tell us the nutrition story. I'm intrigued. <laughs> so in my I'm 52 now, but in my early 40s, almost 10 years ago now, I developed all kinds of you know mysterious. Uh, symptoms. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners may be familiar, personally familiar with a lot of these, especially if they're older, middle aged or older, is, you know, things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and migraines and IBS and just all kinds of challenging things were happening for me, uh, even though I thought I was pretty healthy and I was exercising all the time and, and you know, ate a, I already actually ate a, a low glycemic index diet yeah. um, and, and sometimes even a low carbohydrate diet to manage my weight. So I thought I was doing pretty well and, uh, but I, but I, you know, I developed all these symptoms and my very smart, very caring Harvard-trained subspecialty doctors um, who were trying to help me out couldn't figure out what was wrong, and they told me everything looked fine. Excuse me, looked fine, and uh, all the tests looked fine. Um, but what? Uh, but you know, none of them, not even the gastroenterologist who was trying to help me with the IBS, for example, none of them asked me what I ate. And uh, so, did that surprise you that they didn't <laughs> ask what you ate? Well, at the time it didn't, but after I figured out how to help myself, it does I, now. <laughs> it does now. So, you know, I ended up because at least some of my problems had to do with, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms, I did a kind of a trial and error experiment. I thought, well, some of these symptoms must be related to food since one of my symptoms is, you know, stomach pain. So I just started to play with my diet. And through trial and error, after about six months of keeping a food and symptom journal, I ended up with a completely different diet than I than I had been eating before. And, you know, it was very, as I'm sure you can guess, um, it had a lot of fat and cholesterol and meat uh, in it. And uh, I I was convinced, you know, I felt fantastic. Every single symptom that I had went away. I felt better than I'd ever felt before, um, even when I was much, much younger. And so it got me curious about, well, why is this diet that uh, everyone tells me should kill me? Why is that diet the one that has helped me feel the best? And that's when I started reading um, everything I could get my hands on about nutrition to try to understand. And yep. even the the other piece, which surprised me um, even more, was that, you know, I never had any major mental health problems, but my concentration and mood and energy were so much better on this diet. And so and as, like, as a psychiatrist, I thought, well, that's fascinating. How does that work? I want yeah. to understand 
how food affects the brain. And people don't talk about it very much, or at least they never used to. Did you not get any kind of training with nutrition and its effect on mental health when you were training to be a psychiatrist? Absolutely none. Really? We had maybe two hours in medical school of nutrition and zero hours of nutrition in four years of psychiatry residency. I mean, with all we know about the brain being, what, 70% fat, (laughs) it would seem to me that they would put some kind of uh, emphasis on that, but zero. Wow. Yeah, no, I don't. I, and most of my colleagues do not think about food. I think psychiatrists who think about nutrition, there are, there are just a handful the of weirdos. us. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Good weirdos, though. We love the weirdos. Me too. <laughs> well, that that's fascinating. And, and I'm dying to ask a psychiatrist this question. So, Georgia, you're, you're it today. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people that start on a low-carb high-fat ketogenic diet, I think the fears that are put into their heads by doctors and dietitians and family members and busybody co-workers, you're going to kill yourself, blah, blah, blah. That has to take some kind of an emotional toll on them psychologically uh, that can actually, even in the midst of eating that way, cause some damage? Uh, am I kind of stretching there or, or do people have to overcome that in order to get the full benefits well, no, I think that's a great question. Uh, it, it causes a lot of anxiety, both sort of internal anxiety, but also um, a lot of stress in their relationships. You know, socially, the diets that uh, you and I and so many other people are starting to eat now, they're still relatively uncommon. And they're still, most people still don't think of the way we eat as normal, normal right. healthy. Right. So it does put a lot of strain on relationships, you know, within homes and, and social events and so forth. And so, you know, it can be hard to eat a different diet than everybody else. And it can be especially hard to eat one that other people think is wrong or bad. I'll give you so, one better. <laughs> Try fasting around these same people and they just look at you like you're a three eyed monster. <laughs> How long have you been you're fasting doing what? now? <laughs> That's right. And so those of us who are willing to um, to throw out the old uh, the old information, which is, you know, not based in science at all, and try something that makes a lot more sense. We were still we're still pretty odd ducks out here. Yeah, but I do sense that 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 is changing. There's a lot of great new research that's out there. We're going to talk about one here in a minute out of Australia. But, you know, I I mean, mental health is paramount. I mean, so many people are dealing with early onset dementia, Alzheimer's disease, uh, and even just those kind of daily mood swings. We all know those people in our lives. (laughs) And and every time I hear about one of these things, I always go, I wonder if they're getting enough fat in their diet. Well, yes. Uh, whenever you know, it's funny how I've come to think about things, having read so much and and uh, and uh, learned so much about diet and the and the body and the brain. Is that now, when any, whenever anybody tells me that they have anything that's concerning to them, whether it's physically or mentally, the first question that comes to my mind is, I wonder if it's being caused by their diet. Yeah. And um, and that's rare, by the way. Not, not many are saying that as the first line of defense. That's usually like, well, I guess we've given them all the meds we can and we've drugged them up so much. I guess we should look at what they're eating now. Exactly. <laughs> if, if they even go there. That's the last place they look. You're exactly right. And so I love that to change. I, I'm trying to change that. Uh, you know, I tell my patients, uh, you know, I, I, I prescribe medications every day and, and I do see them work. 
wonders. And there's no question that they can be helpful, at least in, in quite a few people. But I tell my patients that the most powerful way to change their brain chemistry is through food, because that's where the brain chemicals come from in the first place. And so that's where you can really make get to the root of the problem. What is it in fatty acids that's so critical to brain health? Uh, well, I don't know that we understand that very well. I mean, I think that what we do have a better handle on is that when you're when you're burning primarily fat for energy, your mitochondria work a lot better. And if you're not fueling your body with um, with refined carbohydrates and putting yourself on an insulin and blood sugar roller coaster, then your hormones are in much better balance, and you're not setting yourself up for inflammation and oxidation throughout the brain and body so there are i mean those are the i mean i think that uh it not only are fatty acids fatty acids uh, uh cleanly burned and safely burned um it's it, it's not just the presence of the fatty acids and the ability to burn them but also the lack of the refined carbohydrates in particular yeah. um that you know that we, we need to not just uh make sure we're burning fat but also make sure we're not uh, burning refined carbohydrate. Uh, I think right. if that there's one change people could make, it would be that. Yeah. And, and I get that a lot. People just say, well, I'll just cut down on the amount of carbs I'm eating. And I'm saying, okay, that's a great start. But I think sometimes that next step of making sure you're getting adequate amounts of these saturated and monounsaturated and a little bit of the omega-3 fats, they all play a role in optimizing that, that noggin up there. Well, that's right. That's right, Jimmy. Uh, you know, the, the, you bring up the fat balance, the types of fat are so important. You know, there's a lot of evidence in the psychiatry literature about omega-3 supplementation, you know, omega-3 being that sort of very flexible fatty acid that helps keep our brain, uh, our brain cells working properly. You know, that it's not just, <laughs> you know, like when, uh, when I was uh, a psychiatry resident learning how to become a psychiatrist, I, I was kind of led to believe that the brain is just a bag of neurotransmitters and that, you know, like dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine and that the way to correct problems in those neurotransmitters was by taking medications to rebalance those chemicals. And, but, you know, the, of course, the brain is so much more than that. And, uh, you know, in order for those neurotransmitters to be working properly, all of your cells have to have the right kinds of fat and protein in them in order to function properly and be able to pass those neurotransmitters back and forth. So, um, you know, it, all the components have to be there. And the omega-3s are critical. And most of us, uh, even those of us who eat uh, a diet that contains animal foods, um, most of us are deficient in omega-3s and yeah. they're vital for brain function. But vegetarians and vegans, particularly vegans, are at very high risk for low uh, omega-3 levels in the brain. So, and then the other piece of that, so so in any case, getting back to the literature, there are many studies indicating that if you take an omega-3 supplement, you can improve to a small extent various types of psychiatric disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, to, you know, a little bit. And um, they certainly don't hurt and they definitely do help. But the studies aren't that robust. And uh, what I what I wonder is whether they're not paying enough attention to omega-6 intake. Mm. So uh, they, you know, because 
omega-6 and omega-3 compete with each other, omega-6s come from most, the highest amounts of omega-6 are found in the seed oils, the highly refined, modern processed industrial oils like canola oil and soybean oil, for example. It's in everything. (laughs) It's in everything. And we're told that they're good for us because they have no cholesterol and no saturated fat. Um, But nothing could be further from the truth. They're very damaging and they interfere with omega-3 function. So if it's not enough to raise your omega-3, you've got to also lower that omega-6 for your brain fats to be healthy. So when someone cleans up their diet, Georgia, and they eliminate a lot of those bad sources of omega-6, what are the good sources of omega-6 that they can balance out with the omega-3 ostensibly from cod liver oil and fish and and other sources? How do they get the omega-6? Because it's still an essential fatty acid. Good question. So, yes, it is essential, but the good news is that omega-6 is everywhere. Yes. So, um, just about every food that contains fat, whether it's an animal food or a plant food, contains plenty of omega-6. Yeah. Um, so, you never you mean have a steak to- doesn't just have saturated fat? That's what the media <laughs> tells right. us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, uh, you, don't, you don't have to worry about omega-6 deficiency. Omega-6s are plentiful in, in, in the food supply. Yeah. So... What role does the K-word ketosis play in all of this? Because uh, ostensibly when you're cutting carbs and raising fat, that does have a byproduct. Uh, How does ketones fit into all this equation about brain health? Oh, well, that's a fantastic question. So, you know, um, I kind of think about this. I first became interested in that question um, uh, when I was noticing the the similarities between epilepsy and bipolar disorder. So many of your listeners probably know that epilepsy has been treated with ketogenic diets for about 100 years now. Since the 1920s, yep. Exactly. And so, um, and, and as and any of your listeners who are psychiatrists or, or who have bipolar disorder and take mood stabilizers will know this, that psychiatrists use epilepsy medications, anticonvulsants, all the time to treat bipolar disorder and other forms of mood swings. Yep. So it stands to reason there might be some similarities there. And it turns out that bipolar disorder and epilepsy share many biological features, including similar neurotransmitter imbalances, similar alterations in sodium distribution within cells, and changes in chemical messengers. And so, uh, you know, the fact that they have so much in common begs the question of whether perhaps a ketogenic diet could be useful to stabilize mood as well. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And so, you know, there's no more powerful evidence that you that uh, a low-carbohydrate diet can change brain chemistry than the fact that you can cure seizures with a low-carbohydrate diet. So, I mean, really what it is is that people with mood swings, their their brain cells are, are there's overactivity in the brain cells and um, uh, inappropriate overactivity in the brain cells. But there, Why? Is it inflammation? Well, inflammation is one part of it, but it's also uh, the fact that sodium levels are too high inside of cells, and that can happen on a high insulin diet. Mm. And and it's also the fact that, um, you know, when uh, – so there are basically three ways that – that a high refined carbohydrate, high insulin diet, let's put it that way, a high insulin diet can disrupt 
brain chemistry, and one is through inflammation and oxidation, and another is through insulin resistance, which we know a lot about. And, um, and, and then also there's the fact that uh, when you're eating that way, you're putting your insulin and blood sugar on a roller coaster. And you might think, well, okay, my insulin and blood sugar on a roller coaster, at, at least the insulin's bringing the blood sugar back down. So why should I worry? The problem is that insulin is a really powerful growth hormone and it's, it's orchestrating the levels of all of your, almost all of your hormones in your body and your neurotransmitters. So when your insulin's going up and down, everything else is going up and down with it including estrogen levels and serotonin levels and cortisol levels and adrenaline levels so you just can't have hormonal harmony and you can't have right. good balanced mood and and you can't have balance in your brain if you're eating that way so the ketogenic diets i feel really need to be studied um for bipolar disorder we don't have any so far, we don't have any good clinical trials of ketogenic diets and bipolar disorder. I would love uh, to see that happen. We just have a couple of case studies in the literature and a lot of anecdotal. So uh, do it. So do it. <laughs> I would love to. I'm actually working on trying to find out how to, to do, uh, incorporate some research into my work. I'm, I bet you Eric Westman would be happy to collaborate with you on that. Make I it. had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Westman at, at Low Carb USA when I saw you again yep. uh, in January in West Palm Beach. And I, I'm a huge fan, well, of both of you, and, uh, and, and a huge fan of Dr. Westman's. I've, I've read uh, so much of what he's written, and he's really, he's really informed my understanding of ketogenic diets more than, more than so many other people have. So, I, I, and he's a lovely person. Yes, uh, so, I, you know, I'd, I would welcome any opportunity to work with him. Just don't ever write a book with him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Speaking of stress, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's a good guy. <laughs> Want to enjoy a sweet cookie and still stay in ketosis? Two friends did just that with Keto Cookie. Christopher and Victor went on the ketogenic diet, lost fat, and felt amazing. But they wanted something sweet and convenient for their busy lifestyle. So they created Keto Cookie and now want to share this sweet satisfaction with you. Is this really keto? Low Carbers tested Keto Cookie with their glucose monitors and were amazed by the results. How is this possible? Keto Cookie is made with non-GMO almond flour, is naturally sweetened with erythritol and monk fruit extract, and has a healthy amount of grass-fed butter, coconut oil, and MCT oil to fuel your day. With less than 2 grams of net carbs, it's the perfect on-the-go snack to keep you energized and ready to inspire the world. Enjoy your chewy childhood favorites like chocolate chip and the cinnamony snickerdoodle, gluten-free, guilt-free, and bake-free. To discover more about Keto Cookie and how two friends are inspiring people to eat smarter but sweeter, visit KetoCookie.com and be sure to use the promo code LLVLC to receive 15% off your order. And follow them on Instagram for exclusive giveaways and specials at Keto cookie have you tried the jigsaw electrolyte supreme yet it replenishes minerals b vitamins and electrolytes that are lost daily through sweat urination occasional diarrhea and exercise a live in la vida low carb show listener named trisha writes i listen to your podcast on the iphone app and have enjoyed your sponsor jigsaw health where you talked about the electrolytes lemon lime for ten dollars off with coupon code llvlc my feet and legs cramp up often even though lc 
DHF two and a half years, and then keto half year after that for three years total eating well. I wondered if the electrolytes would help, so I used your coupon code. First night of drinking the mixture all day, no cramps, slept well, and every night since. Just reordered the three-pack this time, saving more money and using your code once again. Thank you. It really tastes good and works great. I use twice the amount of water they suggest, or it's too sweet for me, so I put a scoop in 16 ounces or half a scoop in 8 ounces instead of one in eight. So join Trisha. Get Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme. Head on over to lowcarbelectrolytes.com and definitely use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to save $10 off of your order. Again, it's called Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme. So we talked about Alzheimer's a little bit earlier, and I remember way back in 2007, over 10 years ago on this here podcast, I actually had Dr. Larry McCleary on, a, a neurosurgeon, and he mentioned that Alzheimer's disease within research circles, even way back then, was being referred to as type 3 diabetes. I remember when he said that for the first time, I was like, oh, wow, I never really put the two and two together that this is just another form of diabetes, and now we're seeing it everywhere described that way. Do you, do you agree with that assessment that it's another form of diabetes? Uh, a thousand percent agree with that. Um, the uh, you're right. The evidence has been out there for more than ten years now, but for some reason, a lot of people still haven't heard about it. Um, so the science behind insulin resistance and Alzheimer's disease is the most powerful science available in the mental health and nutrition field. The, you know, mental health and nutrition is really in its infancy uh, in terms of looking at, um, you know, for example, insulin resistance and diet and bipolar disorder and depression and psychosis. There are definitely some very intriguing studies starting to come out, but they're just a, just a handful. With, with Alzheimer's disease, we don't just have, you know, weak epidemiological evidence. Uh, we don't just have a few studies that were poorly done. We've got evidence from just every possible line of evidence you can imagine, basic science, animal trials, human trials, um, you know, mechanistic evidence, just everything you can imagine, even drug trials, which, which prove to me and to many other people beyond the shadow of a doubt that insulin resistance is not just associated with Alzheimer's disease not just increases your risk, it actually causes most cases of garden variety Alzheimer's disease. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Well, I'd be danged if I'm going to let it happen to me, even though I have insulin resistance pretty bad. uh, I I think getting it under control and some of the benefits I've even seen in my own mental health since getting, you know, seriously ketogenic, um, I I can feel that. I I actually sense that the brain health is better, mood swings, all of that kind of stabilizes out. And so, yeah, I I encourage people that are worried about that. If you have family history, I get emails literally all the time that say, oh, I'm so worried about this because my grandfather had Alzheimer's and now my father's starting to have signs of it. I don't want to have it. Start eating keto right away uh, because you really want to get that insulin resistance under control. I, I agree with you. I, I can't. I can't make a stronger recommendation to people who are concerned about that condition. And you know, it's 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 almost never too late unless you have severe advanced Alzheimer's disease. It's yeah. not too late. Not too late. Are there supplements that people can take along with their ketogenic diet that can help adjunct this or or other lifestyle things? I'm assuming stress management would keep insulin levels down as well. What what are some things that people can do? 
in terms of uh, supplements, um, there's definitely some some emerging science that supports the use of coconut oil, MCT oil, and yep. ketone supplements in um, you know sort of um, bringing up ketone levels in the blood right away and that can improve brain function right away usually within an hour um they don't last a long time you have to keep taking them repeatedly throughout the day i have to keep eating coconut oil (laughs) darn (laughs) (laughs) um yes it's just it tastes terrible doesn't it horrible Uh, yes Um, but, uh, you know, and th- those things can, those things can improve your ketone levels right away. But, you know, and, and I know that th- this may be a little bit controversial. I may not. Um, I like controversial. Bring it. Well, <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's really it, for people who are not changing their diet, but they're just trying to get away with using the supplements, you know, yes. just adding ketones or coconut oil or MCT or exogenous oil. ketones. And yeah, exactly. If you're not also changing your diet, then you're not actually doing anything about the underlying disease process, which is continuing to progress, even though you're masking it with those supplements. So unless you get your insulin levels down, um, the damage is continuing to occur, even though you might not realize it while you're taking those supplements. So I I, I love the idea of people using the supplements to sort of give themselves a boost and get themselves uh, sort of get themselves on track quickly and see some results and get some inspiration. Um, but I also, uh, you know, hope that people who can, um, can, will also change their diet so that they can get even more benefit from the endogenous ketones, the ketones that come from within the body. Absolutely. And I would even add that anything that would help you lower your blood sugar, things like berberine is a really popular supplement that can help lower your blood sugar. That's going to in turn also boost your ketones uh, as a side effect of lowering the blood sugar. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard about that, Jimmy. Yeah, so I actually have a line of supplements now that we came out with. One of the things that that we did some research on was berberine, uh, and we threw some chromium in with it, another known blood sugar-lowering thing, and banana leaf. Um, Keto Living is the name of the line, by the way. So berberine uh, does that for you, and and yeah, in conjunction with lowering your blood sugar. I've actually taken it uh, to help try to manage some of my insulin resistance and I find that it does help increase the ketones when they when they become sluggish at coming up. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about red meat for a second because it's always in the crosshairs, so to speak, uh, in the headlines. It's about every six months, Georgia, that we see some headline that has some dastardly thing about red meat causing cancer and leads to death and dun dun dun. You know, all this kind of. Uh, uh, <laughs> Fear and and fear mongering, I guess, is the word I'm trying to think of. And and it just seems like that that there's just this concerted effort. uh, And the World Health Organization is definitely on the forefront of that. I believe they're led by a vegetarian. The guy that actually leads who uh, is a vegetarian. So, you know, how do we respond to that? I mean, I'll put out there, guys, relax. This is nothing new. It's epidemiological study. It's not really a randomized control clinical trial. And yet people get in a tizzy. So, Help them relax. Help them not have stress in their life. Tell us how you respond to some of those things. Yes, as a psychiatrist, I want people to feel less stressed, right? Um, (sighs) There's one thing you don't need to worry about. It's red meat. Um, So everyone can relax about this. And, you know, I've looked very hard for evidence to, um, to, uh, to, to convince me 
uh, gone out of my way to look for science that will prove to me that red meat is something to worry about because I do eat a diet that includes red meat. Yeah. I want to know whether I need to be worried. So when the WHO came out with their report uh, um, last year saying that, you know, red meat uh, probably causes cancer, and you know, they proclaimed this to the world with very little evidence, I actually looked at uh, yes, a lot of it was epidemiology, but they did include, <laughs> they looked at over uh, 800 epidemiological studies, yeah. um, and uh, basically those came out as a wash. Some of them said meat was fine, some of them said meat was not fine, so make what you will of that. I think epidemiology is, is useless when it comes to, I mean, epidemiology is good for generating a hypothesis. Hypothesis, right. You've got to test it out. Yeah. and. And, and, and too often, you know, media will print a headline based on epidemiology without any, any uh, you know, uh, clinical trials that have, uh, to back up the hypothesis. It gets eyeballs. That's why. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, Red wants- meat causes cancer. You may die. <laughs> yes, and the only way red meat is going to uh, cause cancer if it's it's still living and chasing after you. Yeah. So, um, it's like uh, final destination. The only way it's going to kill you. <laughs> Death is coming for you. Uh. But you know, when I looked, um, when I looked, uh, I, I read every single. Um, clinical, every single experimental piece of evidence that the WHO used in its report, they actually only used a grand total of six studies. Wow. Six studies to uh, try to prove their case that red meat was was dangerous for people. So, and uh, four of those were done, well, three of them were done in rodents and three of them were done in people. So, and even in the studies that were done in people, it's just ridiculous when you looked at the actual studies that were done. Right. Oh, how flawed they were. I mean, I could not come away convinced that red meat was dangerous for me based on the way these studies were done. And, you know, in, in the animal studies, did you know that they <laughs> they didn't just feed little hamburgers to mice? That's not what they did. And then, you know, watch them develop cancer. They actually pre-injected yes. the animal with a carcinogen yes. first. And Speed up the process of getting cancer. And they still didn't develop cancer. None of them did. Wow. So um, that's fascinating. And the, and the human studies are just, uh, I, I won't bore your listeners with it. They can they can look at, the, if, they, if they're really curious, I have an article on my website called, um, uh, let's see, the title of it is WHO, who says meat causes cancer? Who says meat causes cancer? I thought you were going to say who let the dogs out. <laughs> <laughs> So that really breaks it down if you're really curious to know the yeah. nitty-gritty. And, and the, the studies are really uh, extremely uh, poorly done and very, very small and have never been replicated. Um, and they don't they really don't isolate meat as a problem. There it so- is. That's exactly what I was going to say is usually you don't just eat meat by itself unless you're one of those zero-carbers. And there are quite a few people online that eat zero-carb. That's the people that I want to see studied about red meat. You know, let, let's see their health. And I, I think they know the answer is going to be they're in robust health. Um, but, you know, the, the problem is... They put it out there, people believe it, and it becomes part of the cultural zeitgeist of what people believe. Speaking of trying to undo uh, people's thought patterns about something, that's something that's really difficult probably as a psychiatrist, trying to undo people's learning of bad information. Well, that that's right. Uh, it's actually a huge problem for any of us who are trying to, you know, trying to promote a different way of thinking about something. It's not just, you know, making the case that what we have to say is uh, valid, but it's 
unteaching all of the bad information that people have received over the years. Yeah. And through no fault of their own, they have a completely different way of thinking about it. So, you know, when I'm giving presentations, I'm sure this has happened to you too. The people who are hardest to convince in the audience are the are the traditionally trained nutritionists. Yes. Um, and epidemiologists, and be, and you know they've got a stake. They've got a stake in the wrong side of the story, and it's very hard for them. I'm sure I understand this to really look th- that they've invested time, energy, money, their reputation in the wrong path. And so I think it's pretty hard. It's going to be pretty hard to to admit that. You know what? You I'm know? I'm encouraged though because I'm having more and more RDS registered dietitians come to me just about every day and saying, I get it now. And I'm saying that it's a lot of the younger ones, a lot of kind of the millennial generation of RDs. Okay, they went through the training, but now they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing what's happening to my clients and something's not right. So there, there are people that are getting it. I think it's going to be a slow turn, though, especially with companies like Coca-Cola kind of leading the nutritional teaching the the continuing education of these groups we see it in the medical associations and it's just as bad in the dietetics association well i'm really glad to hear that you're noticing that um because that's really the wave of the the way of the future i think that if if younger professionals within the nutrition sciences can can lead the way then it will help us out so much for sure Now, speaking of controversial, uh, and we talked about uh, meat not causing cancer, you know, and a lot of times people say, well, just eat fruits and vegetables and that's a healthy diet. But is that necessarily true? (laughs) Well, if you ask me, I'm I'm not convinced. And so, uh, um, (laughs) (laughs) well, so the the information, all of the all of the science that we have that uh, suggests that eating more fruits and vegetables might be better for us comes from epidemiology. And so um, we really don't have any proof that adding, simply adding more fruits and vegetables to your diet does anything for you. Uh, What I can say is that if you're replacing junk food, processed foods, um, refined oils and refined carbohydrates with fruits and vegetables, then you may see some benefit, not because of what you're adding, but because of what you've taken away. And so, uh, you know, and that's where, that's where the zero carbers and I've, I've, been I, I've I've done zero carb on and off over the past few years myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not convinced that we need anything other than animal foods in order to be healthy, and that when you start adding plants, particularly vegetables and and most importantly seed foods. By seeds, I mean grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Yeah, um, legumes. Yeah. Those foods, legumes, exactly. When we add those foods, we're really, I'm convinced, we're putting our health at risk. And the reason for that is, as a a psychiatrist, I kind of like to think of things from someone else's point of view. So I like to kind of put myself in the position of a plant. So if I'm a plant sitting in a field, how am I going to protect myself? I don't have claws or fangs and I can't chase you and I can't growl at you. I've actually developed over hundreds of millions of years sophisticated chemical weapons to protect myself from being eaten. cloud poof. (laughs) (laughs) Come and get me. I'll make you sick. That's right. And so, you know, many plants have, have, um, they, they want, many plants will want us to eat their fruits if they, you, if they need to use us to transport their seeds, so to speak, transport them and you to deposit them somewhere where they can be happy and germinate and grow into a new baby plant. So some plants use us 
um, by enticing us with fruit and then inside the fruit is seeds and those seeds, you know, travel through us and then on to better pastures. So fruits are designed to be eaten. They're designed to be appealing to us and easy to digest. Um, Not so the rest of the plant and particularly not the seed. The seed is the future of the plant. That's the last thing in the world it wants you to grind up and digest and eat. So that's where almost all of the very strong, um, uh, sort of what quote unquote anti nutrients are located are in the are in the seeds. And grains are just seeds of grasses, and legumes are seeds of certain types of plants. Those foods are very very risky, and uh, you know that's. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people find a paleo, so-called paleo diet, um, so healing is because it removes those foods. Um, and, you know, I, and for people with food sensitivities or digestive issues, those of us who have had some breakdown in our gastrointestinal system over the years or in our immune systems, we cannot just have medication sensitivities and, you know, um, uh, some people are very sensitive to scents and things, but we can also be sensitive to the chemicals and natural chemicals in plants. And animal foods just do not have those chemicals. They defend themselves in other ways. So the safest and gentlest foods on our systems are the animal foods. Uh, The plant foods are all suspect, particularly the seed foods. Yeah, and what's interesting, the American Diabetes Association actually conducted a survey of their members and said, you know, what do you eat as your vegetable? And of course, it should not come as a surprise to anyone that, you know, upwards of like 58% said potatoes. (laughs) And then they broke it down into the teenagers of that group and 75% of those said potatoes, but not just potatoes, fried potatoes. Gee, I wonder what that is. <laughs> and then as far as fruit goes, banana was like the top of the chain. So the highest sugar, the highest starch foods are the things that we're eating as fruits and vegetables, you know, as if they're just automatically healthy and all the same thing and they clearly are not. That's right. And you know, I, I for people who have a sort of robust immune system or robust gut and they feel well otherwise and they're just, you know, you know, they don't have any special issues, um, I think that vegetables, not seeds, but vegetables, you know, sort of um, these the stalks and and leaves and so forth of of a plant, I think those can be really filling and really tasty additions to the diet that are low in carbohydrate and and can help you stay true to your goals. But I do think that people who have changed, let's say you eat a low carb diet or you eat a paleo diet and you're still not feeling right. I think it's, it's, it's nice to take a second look at those, at those plant foods and see if some of them may be bothering you. Yeah. Well, one last thing we have not talked about, I teased it a little bit er earlier. There's actually an interventional study of diet that took place out of Australia back in January, 2017 was when it got published on depression. Can you tell us the details about this new study? Oh, yeah, this is really exciting. And, uh, (laughs) you know, a lot of people think that there have been a lot of studies of diet and depression because they've seen headlines saying that, you know, um, eating a certain way will, you know, improve your depression. But those all come from epidemiology, you know, questionnaire based um, studies which haven't been proven. But this is the, as far as I'm aware, this is the first uh, clinical trial in the world of diet and depression, meaning they took people with depression, changed their diet, and then they looked and saw what happened. And this brand new study in January 
uh, out of Australia was done by Professor Felice Jacka, um, and she is really a pioneer in nutrition and psychiatry. She's, Sydney, where is she? Um, she's in, uh, let me just check on that. I've got that written down somewhere. <laughs> the University of Sydney has a lot of really great research, uh, as does Melbourne. There's all kind of great research happening, not in America. <laughs> Uh, that's right. No, none of this stuff ever happens in the United States. She's, she's from Dakin University, D-E-A-K-I-N, Dakin University. Got it. Um, My Aussie so, listeners will know exactly what that is. Yes, from the, uh, from the merry old land of Oz. There you go. So she's, um, she did this study, a randomized controlled study called the SMILES trial. And she took, um, she took a few dozen people and put them on put them on a modified Mediterranean diet, compare, and then compared that to another group of people who were just uh, asked to come in for, for supportive counseling sessions. Yeah. And what she found after, I think it was 12 weeks, is that the people who followed the Mediterranean diet, their depression scores were lower, and some of them uh, even reached remission. Uh, 32% of them no longer met criteria for depression at the end of the study compared to only 8% in the uh, support group arm. But I should say, first of all, um, most of the people in the study were already taking medication and were in psychotherapy. So it's not as the diet alone was the key, but the diet added something helpful to many of these people's uh, treatment Right. Uh, plans. But the other thing is that, you know, some people will say, oh, this is fantastic. The Mediterranean diet must be the best diet for depression. And of course, we can't say that. We can only say that it's better than your standard junky diet because mm-hmm. that's what people were eating before the study began. And so I would say, you know, any any diet beats the Western diet, right? It's not hard to improve upon Or a that. diet that's higher in fat, which a Mediterranean diet would be. This, this diet was. It had plenty of fat. It had um, it, it it contained animal foods, including red meat, um, and so this diet I think was about forty percent fat. And so this was not a low fat diet. It was low not processed a processed foods probably too. It had it was people were told not to have refined carbohydrates. It's in very very tiny amounts. Uh, no sugary beverages, etc. Just very they were allowed very very little of those foods. And I really think that that is probably one of the main reasons why. I mean, we can't be sure, right? But if if studies from all other fields of medicine are are any any indication. My guess is that that had a lot to do with it. It may not be that you have to have a certain amount of olive oil per week or a certain amount of, or a certain number of handfuls of nuts or you know it or seafood. It may be that this diet was better because of what it didn't have in it and because it had good fats, healthy fats and was mostly a whole foods diet uh, without junk. And I think that is a great message. Um, what we do need is more studies like this to sh- you know sort of compare different types of diets to yeah. each other. But I think this is a fantastic, a really exciting um, uh, finding. And so I, I wrote, uh, for people who want to learn more about it, I, I wrote an article for Psychology Today about it um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you go to Psychology Today, you can find that. But, um, you know, I think it's important for people to know that if they change their diet, they can feel better. And so many of my patients don't want to take medication or or can't take medication because of side effects or medications don't work for them. And I want them to have other options. I want them to feel hopeful and I want them to feel in control of their mental health. And I do think we have a lot more control than we realize. Yeah. So, Georgia, I think we need to get rid of vegetarian diets. We need to get rid of Mediterranean diets. Even we need to get rid of low-carb and ketogenic diets. We need a low-crap diet. 
<laughs> That's my next hey. best-selling book, The Low Crap Diet. <laughs> I, I would buy that book, Jimmy. <laughs> Her name is Dr. Georgia Eid, and we are always uh, happy to have experts here on the show. She's from DiagnosisDiet.com, and as she mentioned several times in the podcast today, PsychologyToday.com is where she has a regular com- column. Uh, if you're not already reading her columns, go check it out. But Georgia, you are awesome here today on the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show. Thanks so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jimmy. Coming up next time on the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show, we're going to talk about addiction with the author of a book called The Craving Mind. His name, Dr. Judson Brewer. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. 